this afternoon reading the entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And then follows our text, verses 22 and 23, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things, to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In these last two verses of Ephesians 1, beloved, we really have the theme of this entire epistle, the glorious body of Christ. Except here, as is only proper, the focus is not on the body, first of all, but on the head, who is the exalted Christ. These verses still stand connected with that fervent prayer of the apostle for the church, those whose faith in the Lord Jesus had also been evident in their love for all the saints, for he knows that such exemplary Christian living is dependent upon continued living out of Christ and partaking of the love of God revealed in Christ. And so he prays for that increased knowledge, our increased knowledge, the knowledge of faith, knowledge of that hope unto which God has called us, and knowledge of the riches of God's inheritance among us. And in order to understand it all, the abundant riches of our hope, we must know the exceeding great power of God that also works in us, that Christ works in us, and in the church. Our very believing is a result of that divine power. The whole of our Christian life, from beginning to end, is the result of that power of God at work in us. And the assurance of our hope, the riches of the life unto which God has called us, are dependent upon that same power, exceeding great power, power which raised Christ from the dead, exalted him at God's right hand in heavenly glory, and which has put all things under his feet. The apostle prays for us because that knowledge is so important to our Christian faith and life. And we don't live in that knowledge as we ought. Yes, it's easy to make common talk of knowing our hope and knowing the great power of God and being Christian. In fact, there's a strong tendency to talk superficially about believing as if it were an easy thing and living in hope as if any person can do that if he wants to. But if we really know what the apostle is praying for, then our first reaction would be one of amazement that we are Christians at all. And our immediately following reaction would be one of praise and thanksgiving coming to clear expression. To know these things as the apostle prays for us would be the remedy for all sourness toward the gospel, all failure to sing praises to our God, and would be the correction for 
any true, uh, any lack of true thankfulness in our life. Because truly, God has done wonderful things for us. And that comes to its perfect manifestation in the amazing truth that he has given Christ to stand in such a relationship to us that he is our head and the head of the church. And that church is the fullness of this glorious head so that he in whom we stand is he who fills all in all. And with that in mind, we come before this text in application of the gospel signified and sealed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. We look at this text, then, the theme of which is our glorious head. And may the Spirit fill us with blessed knowledge as we see here an amazing picture of vital relationship and a blessed significance. The text sets before us an amazing picture. He who is head over all is given more specifically as head to the church. We stand here before one of the great doctrines of Holy Scripture, the doctrine of the church in relationship to Christ. And a precious doctrine it is, so simple and yet so profound. The relationship is termed in Ephesians 5, you might remember, as the mystery. Christ and the church, and indeed it is a mystery. And undoubtedly, that's why scripture uses several figures of speech to describe the church. The figure of the church as a body is rather commonly used in the New Testament, but it's not the only picture. You remember the church is also pictured as Christ's bride. And in this very chapter, the apostle refers to the church as a household, a family. Believers are members of the household of God. And in the same text, he uses figures of a building, speaking of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and together it forms a holy temple unto the Lord. Elsewhere, you remember the church being spoken of in terms of a, of a plant with Christ himself being the vine, the members, his members, the branches. All these pictures are designed to, to give us some understanding of this mysterious and most beautiful relationship between Christ and his people. So also here, we're not to examine this great doctrine of the church and her relationship to Christ in, in some theoretical manner. We're interested in it in order that we might see 
how the exceeding great power of God actually operates in us and to what effect. We're speaking now of Christ as the head of the church. And you will notice, however, that the text speaks of Christ as head over all things. The text initially continues the thought expressed in verse 21 that Christ has been exalted over all. But in verse 22, we see that Christ, exalted over all, has been given by that same exceeding great power of God to be the head over all things, but the head to the church. That's the emphasis of the text. And the meaning is that he who is head over all is given as head to the church. And he functions as that head over all things for the sake of the church. That's, that this is the proper understanding is very evident from verse 23, which tells us that The church is his body. The most significant aspect of this figure is the relationship that it draws between us and Christ. You and I are joined to Christ. The head and the body are one, organically one. We're joined to Christ, not loosely, not in some mechanical way, but we're joined organically in a living way. And that belongs to the very essence of what the Apostle is teaching here and to the very figure of the human body. The body, as you know, consists of a great variety of parts It's an extremely complex creation of God. To master the study of the human anatomy or the study of physiology, the function of the human body, is an extremely challenging task. But the marvel of the human body is not the multitude and complexity of its various parts, but that all the parts are really one and that they are an organic, essential, vital unity. Your fingers aren't simply tied on. And if you cut yourself, you feel the pain. The finger sends signals to the brain. We don't have detachable parts. There's a living connection between the various parts of the body, the members of the body. And this is a great mystery, of course, but there's a sense in which we may say that as the various parts of the body all develop out of that original cell, so everyone who is born again is an offshoot of Christ in living connection with him. We're not merely loosely attached to him, although some who claim to be his seem to think that way. 
They run with the world. They drink with the world. They dance with the world. It's as if Christ is somewhere out on the fringes. No, that's not the way it is. We are very much one with him. And you can't go any place without him being with you. This is the only way you can even begin to understand that profound text in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 where we are spoken of as partakers of the divine nature. That's an astounding expression. We would never dare say such a thing were it not in the Bible. You and I are one, organically one, with Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. And you recognize that we speak of a unity that God alone creates. You and I cannot bring that unity into being. No more than a hand suddenly attaches itself to the body can you and I suddenly attach ourselves to Christ. The very thought is absurd. Also here we are shown that it is the work of the Holy Spirit alone that makes us Christians. God accomplishes that work. It's the result of his exceeding great power. And for that reason, this relationship of the believer to Christ is not something that depends upon us. Although we have a very clear and specific calling in the places God has given us, our connection with Christ does not depend upon our work or our faithfulness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it is permanent. There is no such thing as being part of the body of Christ one minute and out of it the next. There are hypocrites who are not part of the body of Christ who simply put on an appearance of belonging to the body. But you cannot be part of the body of Christ one minute and out of it the next. It's certainly true, one might backslide. One might even become so consumed by sin that, as our canons of Dort put it in the fifth head of doctrine, he may interrupt the very exercise of faith and lose the sense of God's favor for a time. Very possible. It can even appear in such a case that one is not part of the body of Christ, might even have to be put out according to the ordinance of Christ by the exercise of Christian discipline. But don't forget, even that act is in recognition of the fact that God uses such means to restore those who are his. One who is truly a child of God, who is an elect member of the body of Christ, has an organic spiritual union with Christ which cannot be broken. 
So in such a case, the spirit, says the canons in the fifth head, article 7, will most certainly and effectually renew them to repentance, that they may again experience the favor of a reconciled God, their place in the body of Christ. But let's look more closely at this relationship between the head and the body. Paul's speaking of Christ as the head from a particular viewpoint. Sometimes we speak of of the head in the sense of, of authority or government. And there's a sense in which we may view the headship of Christ also from that perspective. He's the king of the church. He's the sole authority in the church. That's an essential element of his name, Lord. There is no head of the church except the Lord Christ. And it's critically important that we maintain that truth and recognize the exercise of his authority by his word and through the special offices he has instituted for that purpose. But it is not, that's not what the apostle is emphasizing here when he speaks of Christ as the head of the church. The point of emphasis here is that as the head of the church, Christ is the very source and focus of the life of the church. As the body derives its vital energy and its finds the source of all its function in the head, so Christ is the source and fountain of life for the church, which is his body. That's the emphasis here. And it's striking how the Holy Spirit moves the apostle to use that figure. You have to remember, Paul was not, nor any around him, not even Luke the physician, had the knowledge of anatomy and physiology that we have today. And yet, the figure of speech used here is perfect. Another demonstration of the knowledge of God the Creator as ministered by the Holy Spirit. There is not a part of our bodies that is not controlled by the central nervous system in the brain, in the head. The life of every muscle, every part of the body is conveyed to it by the brain. It's the center and the source of The whole body's activity. Never is there life in any one member of the body independent from the head. And such is the relationship in which you and I stand to Christ, our head. We stand in organic union with him. 
That's the relationship that God has established between us and Christ. In organic union with the head, through the spirit which was given him and which he has poured out into the body, his body partakes of the life of the head. So that constantly, from moment to moment, there is a a life current flowing from the head into the body, causing all the members, moving all the members, quickening them, causing them to live even as he lives. And that life, don't forget, is the resurrection life. It's the life of him who is exalted over all, He who is head over all, God has given to be the head of the church, which is his body. And as is the life of the head, so is the life of the body. That life of the head, don't forget, is victorious, incorruptible, holy, glorious, eternal. And because of our living connection with the head, our life as the church of Jesus Christ is partaker of all those same characteristics. Do you believe that? What a wonder that is. Although now it does not yet appear what we shall be, We know, as John wrote in his first epistle, that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. So also now, we know what is the hope of our calling, what is the riches of God's inheritance among the saints. For as is the head, so is the body. This relationship to Christ our head is a vital relationship. And that's emphasized in verse 23 where we, the body, are said to be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now in the first place, that tells us that Christ fills the whole body with his life, his own life. We are told in in Colossians 2 verse 9, that Christ in Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then we are reminded of what John wrote in John 1 verse 16, of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Notice, Our salvation is not only established legally by Christ. Mustn't stop there. Christ fills the whole body with his life. Think about this. Think about this, beloved. In all, the exalted Christ fills the whole body from the least to the greatest. What we might look upon as the the most important members to the ones who are least. 
the most insignificant members. You know, we might look upon the church that way. Let's not forget. God gave every single member a place in the body and therefore every single member is important to the body. He fills them all. He fills each member according to his or her own capacity. And that he fills all means that his life fills every aspect of our being, our heart and will and soul and strength and mind. Yes, I realize it hardly seems so now when even the best has a small beginning of the new obedience. But you must not make this text refer only to heavenly glory as if it will only take place then because the language of the text is present tense. While it's true that that the final perfection of this all in all shall not be revealed until the perfection of glory, it is just as true that Christ fills all things even now. He doesn't dwell in merely part of us. His life doesn't touch merely part of the body. You who are in Christ Jesus are new creatures, Scripture says, exactly because Christ fills all in all, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Old things are passed away, Behold, all things are become new. He fills us with all spiritual blessing, with resurrection life, with spiritual knowledge of the things of the kingdom of heaven, with understanding, spiritual wisdom to discern what is the hope of our calling, with a longing for the things above and the gospel, for the gospel which, which points to Christ, with a fervent desire for spiritual perfection, with faith and hope and love. And when the text says, he fills us, it doesn't speak of the work of a moment, as when you go and fill your gas tank with fuel. He speaks rather of a a constant activity, even as the head is constantly laboring and expressing itself through the actions of the body. So he works in us constantly, achieving his own good purpose. Is there faith in Christ the Lord and love toward all the saints, as Paul testified of the church in Ephesus? Does the foot move forward? pressing toward the hope that is set before us? Is there a willing service to advance the cause of the gospel, to testify of what we have heard and seen of the power of the gospel, even in our own lives? Is there care shown toward 
the afflicted saints, the poor and needy, is their labor of love to distinguish the warm-hearted, self-denying, careful follower of Jesus from the lazy, self-indulgent follower of the world and seeker of self. Our hearts filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our consciences filled with peace. Is there submission to the word of God? Earnest longings and desires to grow in grace. It all comes from Christ, the living head of the body. Out of his own fullness, he fills the church, all his saints according to measure. What heart can conceive, what tongue can confess, the treasures of grace and glory that are expressed by the picture of this, our glorious head. But what is absolutely astounding about this text is that Paul tells us that this vital relationship in which we ourselves are completely dependent upon Christ, the head, is a relationship in which we, with the whole church, are the fullness of Christ. The church is that which fills Christ, without which Christ is not complete. Now you're immediately going to pause because you realize this text, to make such a statement, must be speaking from a particular viewpoint and perspective. Because the Lord Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is eternally self-sufficient and independent, perfectly independent. He has no need of us. God is never dependent upon man for his fullness. But let us not forget, the passage is not speaking of the eternal Son of God as such, but as the God-man, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. The inspired apostle speaks here of the Lord Jesus who is our mediator, who stands as the head of his church. The focus is on the relationship, the God-established relationship between him and us. A head doesn't stand alone. A head alone is not complete. A head needs a body. And you don't think of a head without the body. The Son of God, by becoming incarnate, needed a body of which he would be the head. And that was God's eternal decree for him. Because without the body, he would be as a shepherd without a sheepfold. 
a foundation without a building, a vine with no branches. In that sense, and in that sense alone, the church is his fullness. Even then, let us remember, it isn't the church in herself that makes Christ complete. You and I will never claim to add anything to Christ's glory. Because all that we have and ever shall have comes from the head. And yet, the church and the head belong together. That church is ordained by God to be the instrument through which the manifold riches of his grace shine forth from the head. In that sense, the church fills Christ because he fills her. In her, all his love is focused and comes to expression. His love isn't spread everywhere. His love belongs to his body, his bride. In her work, in her, his work, his grace, his glory are all complete. And when she is brought home to be with him in glory forevermore, then she will be seen as perfectly reflecting the the glories of his grace as his fullness. That's the amazing New Testament presentation of the church, the body of our glorious head. The significance of that truth is blessed indeed. We are called in meditating upon this truth to see the exceeding great power of God being worked in us. Through Christ, our head, we have life forevermore. We must realize, however, that however much we may be aware of our sins and weaknesses and the strength of sin within us and around us, and of the greatness of our spiritual struggles from day to day, all the attributes and powers and graces of the Lord Jesus are in us as members of his body. His lifeblood flows through us. Apart from me, ye can do nothing, he said, but with him all things are possible. So that we may say with Paul in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And so as we contemplate life and all its difficulties, and as we are tempted by Satan to feel that all is impossible, and we cannot go on because we are so weak, we must remind ourselves of this glorious truth 
I may be a small and very unimportant member, but I am a member of the body of Christ. I am in him. And therefore, whatever might be true of me personally, of my nature and my situation or circumstances and all the rest, the life of the head is in me. His living energy is in me. The apostle prays that the saints at Ephesus and we together with them may come to understand this and live in this knowledge. We stand in a living, inseparable relationship with Christ our head. Whereas in time past, or by nature, we say, we were dead in trespasses and sins, being brought to the depths by our legal head, Adam. A great change has been worked by the power of God's grace. We are now in Christ. He is the head of the body of which we are the members. What the head does, the body does also. So we have been crucified with Christ, says the scriptures. I, a man who was born in sin, have died with Christ dead to sin. And even as the power of God raised Christ from the dead, I have risen with him. And that's the emphasis in the context of this blessed truth in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Now do you understand why the apostle wrote In Romans 6, verse 11, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God? This all follows inevitably from the truth that Christ is the glorious head of the church of which we are members. Do you believe this truth? Are you living in the consciousness of it? Isn't it to you an absolutely exhilarating truth? What a glorious God we serve, beloved. To stand before the wonders of his gospel and to see these things has to fill our hearts with overflowing praise toward God. And what tremendous application to our Christian life and warfare, our spiritual development, our growth in holiness, God has given Christ to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, 
the fullness of him who filleth all in all. Amen. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe before the wonder of thy grace and before the work of our Savior, who is also now our head. Father, grant also in application to the Lord's Supper today that we live in that knowledge that we are members of Christ, members of his body, partakers of his life. And grant that in order that we live to the glory of thy name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.